I'm not sure if I'm on the air or not. So if anybody's in the chat room who can hear me, um, could you, well, hell, I can't even get the chat room to load. So this could be just me talking to nobody. Kira's having some technical difficulties in the event somebody can hear me, and I think she's trying to find another way to log in. Um, and the chat room's not loading. Well, hell. Anybody's hearing me? We're doing some last-minute juggling here. And, um, well, supposedly I am live, so I'll just yap here for a second. And um, Okay, so Kira is trying to log in a different way, and then we'll get started talking about um, big fucking plots. Um, so while we're waiting... Um, a lot. There have been a lot of people who have been down with the plague, um, some sort of plague lately. You know, fever, just feeling kind of yucky. And then my sister comes down with it this week. And she um, she says, uh, I told her that a couple people I knew online who were um, not feeling so hot themselves. And she says, uh, so I, I got this from you. And I said, well, you know the Internet's not contagious. And then she kind of gave me this funny look like, that's the stupidest thing you've ever said. because, And it was, because this, the Internet is fairly contagious, and it does terrible things to you when you catch it. So today's, um, I was going down um, horrible tag plot holes today, not plot holes, rabbit holes today, and this is a Internet contagious thing. It's just clicking on random tags to see what exactly was behind that. Um Today's random tag experiment, most recent random tag experiment, was platonic BDSM. So I don't know how exactly that works, um, but it doesn't actually sound like a lot of fun. So like platonic spanking buddies or something, you spank me, I'll spank you, but there's no sex involved, or I don't know exactly what to do with that. And sorry, I'm looking at people are poking me on Facebook to let me know that they are hearing me, even though the chat room isn't loaded. Um, so I'm going to let Kira know the chat room is not loading. So I'm going to poke. Okay. So I'm trying to hold on. So, sorry, folks, we're just kind of trying to get through the technical difficulties here, and hopefully we'll get this sorted out, and then we will be yapping about plotting really bu- really big novels. And, you know, uh, just, on the, just on topic a little bit, I won't really get into the whole the whole meat of it, because let's don't know where Kira's heading for this, but this is something that I'm still, I always tend to write really big, um, but my plots tend to kind of evolve as I am... As I'm going, sometimes they I, well not evolve. My word count evolves. When I went into emergence at the, my first um, my first uh, rough trade, um, I really thought I'd get it done in seventy five thousand words, and it's a what is it two twenty or two twelve or something like that. So clearly, I 
really missed the mark on that one. So estimating word counts is something that I have been um, historically really shitty at, um, although I'm better at it now than I used to be. So I'm, I may think something to be 10,000 words and it comes out at 15. Actually, that's a crappy example because that's 50% off. But um, I think some, some, often if I think something to come in around 100,000 words, it comes out to be about 130. To me, that's not too bad because when I used to estimate um, – when something would be fifty or seventy-five thousand words, and it would come in at two or three hundred thousand words, that was terrible. So I'm getting better at recognizing what a big plot is and what is a much smaller plot. And certainly, when you're embarking on something that's gigantic, like I don't know, anything over a hundred thousand words, it's pretty hard. Um, I think for a lot of people to know exactly what word count you're going to come into because. If you've got a lot of world building and a lot of plot points, it's difficult, at least for me, and some people are much better at this than I am, um, to know exactly how many words you're going to need to make something happen. And part of that also may be that some people plot by scene. um, And I often, like they have every scene plotted out, and that's not typically... Um, my process. I tend to have mm, sort of like a list of everything I need to accomplish in a story, and then I work through, I can estimate how much those items are going to take, but I often don't have all the scenes needed mapped out in my mind. So there's a little bit of pantsing in my scene structure uh, in terms of how to get the story crafted. So people who really know every scene that's going to be in a story are going to be able to get much more accurate with their word counts than someone who's kind of a little bit, little bit kind of making up this, making up what's going to happen as they go. Not that was actually badly phrased. It's not so much making it up what's going to happen. Um, and for those of you who are um, online, go ahead and reload Blog Talk because the chat room has been launched. And hello, everybody. Anyway, so when it comes to big plotting, I think that people who um, – the, the, there's a first skill, which is recognizing that you've got a big plot. Um, this, and then another skill is recognizing how many words it's going to take to get you to how, – about how many words that's going to be. And that's like the thing I'm the absolute shittiest at. But people who – like people who work in Scrivener and storyboard their stories, I mean, I really envy the skill, but it actually can kind of derail the process for me a little bit. I can get to the point where I um, have over-plotted to the point that I don't want to write the story anymore. So I actually – even though it's something I'm, I'm intrigued by, when I've tried to venture down that path, I've actually – every story – I've gone down the path of trying to storyboard and map out every single scene, the story has wound up not being written. So I don't know. I'm hearing some noises on the line. Kira, are you there? I am here. I just didn't want to um, interrupt you in your in your train of thought. Um, that was the biggest hassle I've had in the last oh hour because my whole fucking day has been one big hassle after another. But um, so it's a capper hassle. That's what I get. It works perfectly on Skype. Lady Holder can back me up on this. I tested it on Skype and everything was working. It stopped working when I dialed in. And unfortunately, because Blog Talk is having some kind of Skype problem, I couldn't use Skype to dial into the show. 
And I'm sorry the chat room wasn't up when the show started. I was really distracted by the dumbness that was happening over here. So what have you talked about? I couldn't hear shit. I couldn't hear anything. Well, all I was talking about was what I started with. I was talking about that um, I mentioned that when I came into doing emergence, that I thought it was 75,000 words, and it was 212 or something like that, or 220, I don't remember which, 200 and something. And that part of my, I've always been verbose when I write, but that I, I was, I've historically been really bad about estimating word counts. And I think part of that was learning how to recognize what was a big plot and what wasn't. So I was just talking around a little bit about first, you know, first I had to learn to recognize what was a big plot, and then I had to learn to figure out a little bit how to estimate. And that one of the reasons why I don't estimate well is because I don't do, like, scene maps. I don't plan scenes out. I plan a list of things that have to be done in the story and then let the scenes kind of come together organically. And so word count estimation is something that's a really weak part part for me. But anyway, um, I was kind of blathering on about that because I didn't know exactly what direction you wanted to take um, the big fucking plot. (laughs) Well, what I wanted to talk about tonight was about, because Daisy had asked this question, and it it had been brewing on my my head for a little bit, and I'd planned to do a show about it. And um, because... uh, both being plotters, you and I, um, but we do approach the plot process from a different perspective. So I thought it would be interesting to kind of um, go back and forth on what we do as far as, like, building a story and building a world, especially something as big as Emergence, huge. Um, and you've got multiple arcs going with different fandoms, and, you know, and that's kind of spilling out. And you're also doing it with your... your um, I almost said show, like it was a TV show. You're doing it with your um, with your Primus universe across multiple fandoms, um, and they're all kind of going to blend together based on what you told me. So I was just, you know, I thought we could talk about that. One of the ways that I build a big plot is that I... I craft an overall arc for a story, and then I break that arc down into manageable pieces so it doesn't get overwhelming, which is why Sentinels of Atlantis um, went from a single novella in my head to um, a five-season arc. And I broke the season down by episode, and each episode is basically like a little event. So, um, in event plotting, it really helped me. Uh, it really helped me um, open up my process as far as Sentinels of Atlantis goes. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. You got um, a little cloud on your end, and I. Um, it's really a different headset. I'm also because my other headset wouldn't work with this with my laptop. It doesn't work with my cell phone, so I'm having to use my LG headset. And um, I don't, I'm not sure how I sound. It, does it sound okay, you guys? Sounds okay to me. Well, you have a different I mean, experience than the guys who are on the internet because you're on the phone. Yeah. Yeah, it got sound on my actually muted for a second because I was um, right before, like, 
literally like that. When you pinged me and said, can you get on early? I had just finished mm-hmm. drinking this sparkling water. And so I was like, you know, you guys didn't need to hear me burping. So I had to mute it for a second. <laughs> Cause like, I was like, all I... those bubbles I drank all at once. <laughs> made my husband a cake. And I had a piece of cake here, and I forgot about it. And I, I threw my headset over my laptop onto my desk. And because um, my big computer is going through an overhaul, um, I'm getting some software and stuff, and my husband's messing with it in Windows. Anyways, um, <clears throat> I'm using my laptop tonight, which is the root of all my problems. And I threw my headset over my laptop onto my cake. That's okay. I still plan on eating it. I would too. I mean, it's not like it's on the floor. I'd probably lick the headset cord too. Um, I did. I did rub my fingers across it and pull the um, icing off. I know a lot. It's a butter. It's a golden butter cake um, with um, chocolate buttercream. Yeah, I, I thought you said at first I made my husband a cape, and I thought, well, that's a very strange thing to do. <laughs> It's like inducement to fix your computer or something. (laughs) Everyone's telling me what they're eating. I'm sitting here with a glass of water, bitches. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. When I um, I plot big, sometimes it depends upon my initial approach. I think everybody's approach is initial approach is a little bit different. It depends upon if I'm plotting a whole new world. Don't anybody start singing? Um, if I'm doing a bunch of world building, sometimes I knock the. I sit down and really just work on the world building really exhaustively. And so sometimes I feel like I've plotted myself to death, and I haven't done any plotting because all I've done is world build. And then I go, and then I figure out how to slot the characters. I think I have an idea of a story, but I have to work out the world building first. So I'll, but then sometimes some stories are just, you know, big stories without a lot of world building. So that's a really different process. But I tend to get, I tend to be mostly drawn towards stories that have a big world building dynamic to them. And I might have, you know, I don't know, a scene list and four or five pages of plot notes and an entire notebook about the world instead. So it's... Um... <laughs> Let me tell you, um, kind of, it's, it's um, when I did sit on Atlantis, I did my character arcs and my plot, and I totally didn't do any world building. So you can imagine how those first 15 episodes went. And I I, <laughs> I had some inconsistencies, and that's probably also how Miko got left out of the ATA gene list and um, some things like that. Because I was just really excited about the idea, and I couldn't wait to write it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to write. And I was just, I... So sometimes you get that way. I mean, you get to the point where... Um, um, you can't do any more planning. No, I'm, I'm not... I'm writing. Even I mean, even if you have to go back and rewrite most of it, you're, I'm I'm still gonna do it. I, I just can't help myself. Yeah, Sentinel Guide stories. Sometimes with Sentinel Guide stories, I jump um, more so than any other kind of AU. I'll jump in, um, you know, feet first on it and start the world building out 
sometimes I do it in advance. Like with Journey Home, I I did a lot of a lot of things different with um, Journey Home and some of the Sentinel Guide world building, but there's still a lot that's very familiar fanon. So it's really kind of easy to just jump in and just go and kind of pick and pick pieces that you like and go. This is sort of what I want to look like. But then when you're doing something like you did with Sentinels of Atlantis, where you did so much that's you know new and unique, that I could see how it could kind of bite you in the ass <laughs> if you kind of got yeah. It, it did bite me in the ass. But what I've had the only time I've ever actually had to stop a project while I'm writing to go back and do more world building um, would be ties that bind because I I built it basically on dance world and um, I didn't do a lot of world building I just I just took her elements and because um, that was the whole point and um, <clears throat> and it got to that first sex scene and I realized that I needed more world building, so I had to stop and go back and think about um, uh, training and pleasure training and, and how that would work and my own experience with um, being educated in a variety of, of circumstances in, involving BDSM. And I realized that a world built, because even, you know, um, um, even in reality there are, um, there are places and people you can go to to learn these principles and these skills, mm-hmm. they're, they're largely underground. And I thought to myself, well, if they don't have to hide it, <laughs> these training places are going to be everywhere. What am I going to do with this? How am I going to do this? And that's how Pleasure Houses happened. And I had to go back and um, do some world building because I had not done a single bit of world building on the Pleasure Houses all the way up to that point with that first sex scene in my rough draft. And I think it's most evident in that first story that the first little bit um, didn't have the pleasure houses because John's house markings for his Singapore house, I cannot pronounce that, that phrase that I use for that house, um, but his Singapore either. house, his um, um, his marks are across his salt shoulders, and McKay never mentions them during that first sex scene. And honestly, in reality, he should have. Yeah. But the thing is, is he didn't mention them because when I was writing that, it wasn't there and it didn't exist because I had not. I had to go back and build the pleasure houses, and so I think. When I read back, when I look at it, and I read that scene, I go, "Oh God, how, you know, it was really annoying." <laughs> it still took a huge fall, and I imagine most people didn't even notice it. But now, every time you go back to read it, you're going to notice it. You're welcome. <laughs> See, when I, I I've talked to people before about I've mentioned before that um, I had an idea, you know for the emergence world, I kind of had a kind of a general overarching idea. Um, But when I started it, there was no plot. There was no outline. It was like, I'm going to pants this for a while and see what happens. And maybe we'll get to 75,000 words. And the more I started writing into it, the more I realized, because 
I was going to do shorter snapshot type scenes, but it wasn't like building the world the way I wanted to. So I kind of pan. I thought I'm just going to feel my way through this for a while. And then at about, I don't know, 40, 30, 40, 50,000 words, somewhere in that time frame, I said, I got to sit down and figure out what the fuck I'm doing. Because I took the a lot of the world building, not directly, but a lot of the, there was basically, there's a Sentinel and Guide Fanon parallel in Emergence. Um, yeah. And then it's sort of the same thing. something that I noticed first off when I was reading Yeah, it, it's, it's, there's some things that are completely different, um, but there's some stuff that is definitely straight parallels. And um, I went a little too far with that initially. And the thing that I went a little too far with it was the spirit guides because I didn't need them at all. And what I should have done is when I realized I didn't need them is I should have backed them out in my editing. But they were so, like, built in at that point that I now had to figure out a reason for them because I was like, what the fuck does purpose do these things serve? And um, I sat down and I wrestled with that for days. I was like, I put this in, and I've done a lot of work with them, and what purpose do they serve? I have these little spirit dragons running around, and they don't do anything. And <laughs> that was a, that was complete failure of plotting. It was also failure in world building because I took I took too much of my world. I'm like, I'm just going to mirror a lot of Sentinel Guide fan and, and change some things as I go along, and it'll all work out in the end. Well, the problem is I mirrored too much of the Sentinel Guide fan, and I brought in something that was a headache for me later. And then I had, when I was finally sat down, I go, okay, I'm just going to plot this to the end, and if I have to back out the spirit guides, I will. Um, and as I was plotting, I figured out the purpose they served, which was the tether to the ascended plane. They they are effectively the path of ascension. Um, uh-huh. Because they're, that's that's where their energy comes from is from the ascended plane, so that when someone um, has that bond with a spirit, the spirit animal, that when they die they ascend. So um, I was like, oh, gee, that kind of slotted in really well because I had been wondering how I was going to handle the whole <laughs> ascension side of things, and then I was like, oh, I've got a tether to the ascended plane, yay! Yeah, everything's all fixed. <laughs> and <laughs> sometimes things just kind of come together like that at the end, and sometimes they fall apart because you didn't think about that stuff ahead of time. Um, when I popped into the the show, um, you were talking about, um, you were skirting around word economics and um, determining um, word count based on your plot. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I taught myself um, in my middle 20s because I was writing on spec a lot. I was doing articles for writing magazines, and I was writing porn <laughs> to buy textbooks <laughs> and shit like Not in my middle 20s, but I did that in college, um, is, uh, which is probably where that still kind of um, got honed, actually, um, is that um, I I learned to structure a scene around a certain word count. So I know that a small event or a small conversation is going to be between, between 500 and 1,000 words. And I can look at a, a, a list of events and say, okay, I'm going to need about 3,000 words for this. I'm going to need 1,500 for the sex. I'm going to need, you know, 
thing and go all the way through. So if I if I do a scene map, um, to um, to use your phrase from earlier, uh, to build my chapters and then to build my book, I can usually estimate within about a thousand words of my total, based merely on the fact that um, I trained myself to do it. And I did it because I was writing on spec, and when you write on spec, you have to say, okay, I'm going to tell you this story in 3,000 words because they only have room for 3,000 words in the magazine. That's all I'm getting. I'm, I'm, I'm getting these these five columns on these two pages. This is all I get. So I have to make the most of my 3,000 words. And I guess one way to kind of... Um, hone that skill if it's not one that you have is to uh, prompt yourself and only give yourself a certain amount of words to do it. Say, I'm going to do this. You know, and actually what will be really cool is for those of you who are in the Stargate fandom, there is a um, um, a prompt community called McShepley. And they have a whole bunch of prompts. They're all open. You can do any prompt you want. They have hundreds of prompts at this point. You can go to the prompt list, pick one out, and write it and post it. And um, I did that for um, just a little exercise in my mind. Um, it's called The Basket. It's 300 words. I did it on Live Journal. Um, and I gave myself 300 words to tell a little story. And that's all. And that was all I allowed myself. And I actually went over by 50 words, and I had to edit out 50 words. Because I was ruthless. No, you can have, not have more than 300 words. That's all you get. Make the most of it, or whatever how many words it was. I forget how many words it actually was. But I gave myself a set word count to tell a story, and I did not allow myself to go over. So if you guys are out there and you want to try to kind of hone that skill and to help you um, build, because these little scenes build chapters and chapters build books. So if you can write, say the average chapter has, um, this is not the day. This is not the day. Anyways, <clears throat> would be to um, kind of if you say, okay, I'm going to write five scenes in a chapter, and each scene is going to have 1,500 words, then you know how many words you're going to have per chapter. And if you say, okay, I'm going to have, um, say you're going to write um, 100K, and you want to divide 100K by um, 20 chapters. What would that be? That would be 5,000 words each? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So say... Okay, you've got you've got five thousand words per chapter. That's all you're going to allow yourself. How many scenes can you put in five thousand words? If you want to say, okay, I'm going to do four scenes. I've got five thousand words, and then you force yourself to write in that block of words, and this will help kind of organize. Uh, your ability to use word word economics, and you may or may not be successful, but I think it's a good exercise to kind of 
um, manage, uh, especially people, um, and we all know that one person who's never actually completed a story, so they just keep writing. The story is never going to end, and they're never going to tell you that. It's 300 chapters on fanfiction.net, and there's no end in sight because they don't know where the ending is. But they're not going to tell you that. Because <laughs> they have no clue. And that's one of, that's one of my, um, you know, my pieces of advice to panthers is, is that at some point you have to stop and figure out the end game. Otherwise you will just keep writing. It will never end. It will be even a story if, that never ends. Even if you can't plot, I do recommend that you say, okay, this is my opening event, this is my middle event, and this is my end event. This is how my story is going to end. And that way you have some kind of structure. So you're not writing 700,000 words on fanfiction.net unless you really want to. So I'm, I, I'm not picking at this story because I haven't read it. I don't know anything about it. But I know there's like an unfinished work in the NCIS fandom. And there, there may be more than one in the upwards of a million word count. But there's one that's actively updated on a regular basis. It's two and a half million words. And I don't, now I don't know if that story has a plan or not. But from the outside looking in, I tend to think that that author doesn't know the end, what the end point's going to be. And they just keep having more story to tell instead of breaking it up. One of the things is that when you know what story you're going to tell, you can break it up into multiple pieces. But if you don't do know what story you're story series. Multi story arc, right. But if you don't know what the story you're gonna tell is, you just keep having more story to tell. Um, there's a story in the Harry Potter fandom. And I love this author's brutal honesty. Because it says at the very beginning of the story, which is still, you know, obviously a work in progress, um, the story is never going to end. (laughs) (laughs) So buckle up. I love it. I was like, you go, girl. You own that shit. I'm not reading it, but you own it. (laughs) I I, I have actually have read parts of it, and... um, um, every once in a while, I go over and you know try to read it a little bit because it's a Harry Hermione story. But I really appreciate just the brutal honesty of it. This is never going to end. <laughs> yeah, I mean sometimes you sometimes you do you know I don't I don't read the do the whip thing very often. Actually, I got myself I got I really annoyed um, was it earlier today or yesterday when I got into a story. And one of the things I do when I do my searches like on Ao3 or on Fanfiction.net when I when I go pit diving is to mark for completed works only. And yeah, I missed the check I missed the check mark. Yeah, I missed the check mark. I missed marking that and I didn't notice that I'd missed it. And I was like, oh this is something I haven't seen before and I start reading it and it was good. And I get to the to the last chapter and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> How the hell did I get into a whip? Did they mark this whip complete? Because by the way Abandoned and finished are not the same thing, AO3 writers. I'm just saying, quit marking your fix finished when you abandon them. That's rude as fuck. Okay. 
Anyway, so I get to the end, and fortunately, this is, this is a story that's currently currently being updated. But um, I was like, "What the hell? What, I don't read whips. What the hell am I doing?" But every, you know, when you do go down that occasional row where you get into a whip, it would be nice to know in advance. It's going to be three quarters of a million words before I get my characters together. That is the slowest fucking burn of all time. I won't say what fandom it is, but you know, been there, done that, and I was like. How could we be this far into the story and the the main pairing hasn't happened yet? And she said it was going to be slow burn. <laughs> I'm like, I, the slow burn does not equal meeting Harry and Hermione meeting on chapter twenty. <laughs> it doesn't mean. I mean, this would be like you know, um, the entirety of the Harry Potter series before you know reading before you get your main pairing. And except we're not starting with children, we're starting with adults. It was just, it was like, oh, my God. But, you know, I mean, it's, it would be good to know that. You know, on the other hand, I think that if people announced, I'm not going to get my characters together for a million words, people might not be so into it. One of the things that I do, especially um, in the Stargate fandom um, particularly, is that I only um, publish in completed novella form and episode form for Sentinels of Atlantis because I feel like it kind of rounds out the story. And so even if, in my mind, i still got a long way to go, the reader is not left hanging, mm-hmm. with the exception of probably the broken road and ties that bind. But I did post the trial part for my readers because it was slow going, so they wouldn't be hanging on the cliff of John being put in prison. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of, you know, take that to that spot so that they would be, so they would know that things were going to calm down and and be okay. Um, and um, but I just like that. It's just kind of like how I prefer to to leave my series work in such a way that if I if I were to got you know, space fairy for forbid, um, drop dead tomorrow, that my stories are mostly. Contained and satisfying. <laughs> yeah, does that make sense? It does. I mean, I I I don't publish. Uh, there's there's a couple reasons, as from a writer perspective, that I don't like to put whips out. Um, but also, a lot of it is just kindness to the readers. You know, um, it's you know it's better for them if. Um, and I do appreciate my readers, so um, I prefer to write in finished format because I have had shit go down in my life where all of a sudden writing was not a priority. And you can be in the best of intentions in a whip and say, I'm going to be updating this daily or weekly or monthly or whatever the hell your schedule is, you know, but it doesn't account for life, you know. In- you know, life and intentions really often don't match up, so... Um, when something's done, the and when it's done, it's done. And you know Rodney would have a jailbreak in place. fact of the matter is, is if John had ended up in Leavenworth, there would have been a smoking crater where Leavenworth used to be. But I did post the trial because um, it had been a long time since I had posted anything on Ties That Bind. And I'd had that part written for a long time, and I just kind of wanted to give my um, readers a um, a peek at, at what's coming, and also to say, hey, um, it's going to be okay. 
don't don't freak out about the trial. You know, because a lot of people were. I would get emails like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> I can't stand it. <laughs> What's going to happen? You got to tell me. <laughs> Is John going to be okay? I'm like, okay, he's going to be fine. <laughs> when have I ever actually done anything terrible to John Shepard? <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, think about it. OCP, John is her favorite character, and she writes happily ever after. So what is everybody stressing out about? It's going to be okay. <laughs> but um, the last time Jillian and I were on the air, uh, we apparently said some things that were kind of controversial. Yeah. <laughs> and I got an email. No, I don't hate the NCIS fandom, okay? I don't. I love the NCIS fandom. There, I take it back. I just was holding a grudge yes, for a little while. Suck it up. I still would rather read Lily Harry than Jenny Harry, okay? And I'm not going to apologize for it. <laughs> I'm just not. I'd rather read legit incest and pseudo incest. I don't want to read either, but if I had to read one on the thread of my life, it would be the actual incest. Because at least she loves Harry. <laughs> it's terrible. Oh, okay. So. One of the things I had I had had a little some of you haven't some of you aren't on Facebook so you didn't read my little rant about um, somebody asked me if I hated the NCIS fandom and it just kind of triggered this whole thing. Anyway, one of the things I said in there is that you know I've never been a bit apologetic or been shy about the fact that I don't like slave fic or rape fic and that it's the fetishization of lack of consent. That is the problem because it's not like you can't have somebody, a character who's ever been raped, and I'm not going to read the story. That's not what I'm saying. It's people fetishizing rape um, or fetishizing lack of consent that bothers me. So subsequent to that, this was I think yesterday, somebody wrote me and said that they were trying to reconcile that with the fact that I enjoyed BDSM stories um, because isn't BDSM fetishizing lack of consent? My mouth literally dropped open. To which I said, to which I actually responded, I I didn't say much, but actually I responded that you'd be closer to accurate to say that BDSM fetishizes consent. So shut up. I just had a big old pout. And then, you know, also, I was accused repeatedly during the main um, thrust of when I was posting ties at Behind that I was glorifying um, domestic abuse. I received um, a rape threat while I was posting the main divine very regularly. I received a rape threat. Um, someone anonymously posted on Live Journal in a response to something that I had put on um, 
one of the McKay Shepherd or Stargate uh, communities um, that they hoped I got raped because I was glorifying um, uh, rape and um, domestic violence. Oh, my God. What is wrong with so people? That's why I stopped posting in those groups. <laughs> um, I just deleted my post completely from there, um, and I have never updated that group on my work in any form, not not anything, not ties to bind, not what, is my, what might have been, not signals in Atlantis, nothing. I deleted all my posts from that group, as a matter of fact. Um, and I, after that, I largely withdrew from the Stargate fandom, which is why I didn't participate in Secret Santa but one time, and, and, and that was just a pitch hitter. Um, I stopped doing the Shet match before they closed it. Um, I don't do Big Bangs um, for that very reason. I just I can't be a part of fandom in that way when there are people like that in fandom. I don't want to be associated with them. People Someone right now is writing an email telling me how snotty I am. Oh, too bad. <laughs> you guys are just going to have to suck it up. And... Correctly. There's nothing worse than a badly spelled email. <laughs> That's true. If you're going to insult me, at least get your plurals and your possessives right, please. And your contractions, you know. Don't need any your confusion. It throws me off. I want to be sure that I get the insult the proper way. <laughs> it's, it's, um, you know, uh, oh, I, I was also, um, picked at about, some, during the last few minutes of that show, um, I made some offhand comment about, um, um, I'll see you guys tomorrow or the day after or whenever so I can continue complaining more about being uh, internet famous or something like that, something along that vein. It was about, because we had ended that show complaining about being a big name fan. Right. I was called ungrateful in an email. And the question, the email ended with a question, why can't you just be gracious about being a big name fan? So since I know you listen to my podcast, let me tell you why I can't be gracious about being called a big-name fan. Because I think it's stupid. Because I think it implies that some fans are better or more important than others. And that's bullshit. If I'm in a room with 50 other fans and I'm the only writer in the room, I am not more of a fan than any other fan in the room. Being well-known or being popular in fandom in no way makes one person better than another. But what it does do is create situations where people who don't know me have expectations about how I should behave about how I should make friends, about how I should conduct my relationships and friendships with other writers on the Internet because I'm a big-name fan. It also apparently means that a lot of times um, 
I'll be accused of of being ungrateful or being um, uh, rude or um, <clears throat> or people will seek me out for the main purpose of There is no polite way to put this. Being a big-name fan isn't contagious. And no matter how much you rub your body on my internet-wise, you're not going to catch it. That's not how it happened. I don't know how it happened. If I did, I wouldn't have done it. (laughs) (laughs) Take it back, Kira. Take it back. (laughs) But um, it is is interesting because... uh, I'm not supposed to have um, unpopular opinions. I'm supposed to be... Um, You're supposed I don't to know, all of a sudden... Then, when you first started writing, you were allowed to have any opinion you wanted, and then all of a sudden you're supposed to support all ships and all fandoms and all kinks, and you have to, you know, it gets to be ridiculous. It's like somebody starts... Apparently it's in some sort of contract you sign that, uh, you know, once you, you know, pass this invisible threshold that you cease to have a place in fandom other than to, um, what? And what, do you, what do you get after that once you're completely censored by fandom? And that was, a, that was a problem I had in the Exiles fandom was I started feeling stifled because I felt like I could like what I want and do what I want at first, and then a couple years later, I was censored, not censored literally, but like censured, not censored, but censured by admins for not giving people feedback. Oh, you gave feedback to this person, but you didn't give it to this person, they're feeling slighted. Or if I said I didn't like a parent publicly, I was <laughs> I in trouble. Told them all to kiss my ass. And I was very new to fandom at that point in time, so I was very impressionable, and I was like, oh my God, I'm doing fandom wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most, one, probably the most ridiculous things ever come out of my mouth. But you know, that was my thought at the time. I'm like, oh my god, I'm doing this whole thing wrong. Look, Julie, you why have can't to I... give fandom a reach around, okay? <laughs> I was like, why can't I say that I don't like that pairing? I why you know, I'm not saying the story's bad. You can't say more fandoms did. You have to I take know, care of it. Terrible. You gotta. <laughs> it reminds me of that of that post you put off about harvesting dick. <laughs> Let me harvest me dick in peace, Deborah. <laughs> um, that would make no sense to anybody who's not on Facebook, I'm sorry. Um, anyways, uh but there is an that expectation that- um attached to being a big name fan. Um, and, and maybe people, there is some jealousy attached to that as well. But um, well, it's just it's it's just so bizarre. I think the issue for the, one of the things I have the biggest struggle with it is the, um, and I I am like nowhere near have the issues that you have, but certainly but actually was in the NCIS fandoms, people send me recs and stuff and I'll tell them, oh, I'm not going to read that or I haven't read that because it doesn't suit my preferences. And that should be okay, but it's astonishing how often that is not okay. Um, 
like one of the things, like once it, so, you know, somebody asked me, you know, if you read such a story, it's great. And I said, I've tried to read her work before, and it doesn't really suit my taste, so I hadn't picked that one up. And like, well, what's wrong with her work? I said, well, I don't know if there's anything wrong with it at all, but she writes nonlinear. Um, most of the stories oh, I've looked at that. in hers are very nonlinear, and sometimes not even nonlinear in a linear way, like, you know, like the past is linear and then the present is linear. No, it's like it's all over the past. The past is jumping around and the present mm. is jumping around. And I can't, you know, I said, no, I, I don't like nonlinear. Right? And well, all of a sudden it was a big diss and I hated this other writer. Well, and it just turned into this big drama. And I was like, I don't have anything about this person. I just know that I tried to read some of their works. I didn't get very far in them because I find nonlinear. I said, I'm not saying nonlinear writing is bad. It's a personal preference of mine that I don't enjoy it. And I shouldn't have to read it. And it should be okay that I don't read it, which is part of where that whole rant I went off on last week was about, was feeling like sometimes fandom tells me that I don't get to have preferences. And I fully support people can write what the fuck they want to write. People can have whatever fucking pairings they want to write. But I also have a right as an equal person in fandom to not read what I don't want to read. Without it being a comment. Like, you can float your boat any way you want to. Exactly. Just don't float it near mine. (laughs) But, you know, I encountered that when I um, admitted um, that I had not read that story in Stargate. Um, City of the Seven Walls, or what's it called, Lady Holder? The Seven Wall was the one that you told me I'm not allowed to read. Did you just say City of the Seven Waffles? Walls. Walls. It's got walls in the oh, title. Walls. <laughs> um, I heard waffles, and I was like, City of the Seven she... Walls, W-A-L-L-S. Um, it's got race okay. in it, or non-consent, and I can't read that. And someone had wrecked it to me, and I told them, I said, I'm not, I can't read that. I also can't read, um, I can't read Crimes Against Humanity either. A lady holder told me I couldn't. <laughs> And um, they were like, well, you have to read it. Um, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm sh- I'm sure it's fantastic. I'm sure the writing is amazing. Um, but I, quite frankly, I am a sensitive person, and I might not come off that way on the podcast, and I might be, um, you might view me as someone who's very abrasive um, online, but one of the reasons why I switched to Harry Potter and to a het pairing for over a year is because something happened in my chat room on my site and I saw something. Someone posted an animated gift of a really terrible thing happening um, and it involved anal sex and two men. And I literally, I could not write anal sex. For over a year. Because I was so disgusted and horrified by that animated gif that got posted in my chat room. So, reading something like City of the Seven Walls or... Um, Crimes Against Humanity could actually turn me off the Stargate fandom completely. And that would really hurt my feelings since John and Rodney are my OTP and always will be. 
<laughs> I'm going to go down with that ship. <laughs> and nobody <laughs> better interfere with it. <laughs> yeah, Don't some, run my ship some, to ground, okay? Some themes are um, um, very difficult for me to deal with in a story. Um, so... I, I don't care. I don't care the context at all. I don't care if I can't deal with slavery at all. So I don't care if it is a rebellion that is overthrowing their slave-holding government and there's no pairings with the slaves. I don't care. It's a theme that I find impossible to deal with. I don't care how, what, how minor a role it plays. Well, that's not true. I mean, if... If there's no current slavery and you're talking about like his slavery in the past, it's just a mention of something. Like you know, that I don't mean that, but I mean when the characters in the story that I'm getting attached to are are either participating in slavery, are are owning slaves, or who are slaves, I can't deal with it. And it's just I don't read slave fic either. I just it's a theme. It's another 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 in the Sentinel fandom. Yeah, especially in the Sentinel fan because they fetishized it to a ridiculous degree, um, and they also either that or it's to me an expression. Sometimes it was an expression of um, homophobia. Um, I agree. Oh, we got these, I agree. We got these, oh my we got, god, got, there is so much latent homophobia in the Sentinel fandom that it is unfucking real. It's so ugly. It's like. We've got these two characters who have incredible chemistry. If one of, and then you could see them thinking this: if one of them was a woman, I would pair them. <sighs> so they make one of them celibate and a slave, and it's just, uh, it's just terrible. Um, but you know, also another another one I don't deal well, well with, and it, you know, somebody has to who knows me really well. Um, is uh is stories that deal with human trafficking I find it very triggery um I just get can get really disproportionately upset so somebody who really knows my preferences has to really wreck a story feels heavily with human human trafficking um because I just find it so upsetting that I can't deal and if this is not I'm sure there are some great stories that deal with some really difficult themes out there that I will never touch and it is not a diss on the author or the quality of the writing I don't know anything about it it's just not the theme that I want to read. I've had people write me and tell me that um, they've read all my work for emergence because they don't dig the dragon thing. The only thing that bothers me about that is that they feel compelled to tell me. <laughs> because I honestly... They're like, they're the, what they're saying is, is, how dare you waste your time on something that I'm not going to be able to read because it's got dragons in it. Yeah. But I mean, doesn't, if somebody says to me, if somebody said, you know, I I really enjoyed your stuff. I, did, I didn't read the dragon one because I'm not really into that kind of fantasy thing. It wouldn't bother me in the T-tiniest bit. I really don't care. Um, if it's not your thing, don't read it. That's perfectly fine. It's not going to hurt my feelings at all. Um, I, I commented that. But that's not what they're that, saying. No, although one person thought that because she had commented on all of my other stories except for that one, she said, I've read everything on your site, I really enjoyed everything, uh, I just wanted you to know I'm not going to read the dragon one, it's really not my thing, the fantasy elements, and I was like, why do you think you have to tell me that? She said, well, I thought you might notice that I stopped reading. No. 
not keeping a logbook of who's commented on what and wondering where you went. You know, oddly enough, I have a story about that. I used to have um, this really, um, really dedicated reader, and she posts. She always commented on everything I posted, everything. Well, the first three parts of um, Ties of Bind went up, and I didn't get a response. There was no comment. There was no email. And she sent me lovely emails. Um, I didn't get anything. I was like, oh, my God, Lisa hates my story. <laughs> I was, like, really invested in this. Because she sent me all these beautiful emails, right? And um, I kind of found out she had been in the hospital and she'd been sick. So she hadn't got to read my stories. So she comes home with four parts of Ties That Bind. And she read them, and she left comments on all of them and sent me this long email. And I was like, oh, thank God, things like my stuff. <laughs> but Lise, Lise had kidney failure and um, and died. And um, one of the things that um, I I really regret as a writer um, is uh, that I didn't finish Ties to Bind um, because it ended up being her favorite. And she didn't get to read the end. That's so sad. I did tell her how it was going to end. I sent her a really long email going through the events that would happen that I, that I have plotted and, and how it was going to end. Um, so I didn't want her not to know. <laughs> I think it's really sweet that she did that. She also got... Oh, she also read all the unpublished um, Lantian Legacy books that I have. I said, they're not really what they're supposed to be, but do you want to read them? And she was like, yes, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> but she read that. that. You know, it's, there, <laughs> there are some readers who have been with me since from, from the beginning, from when I first started writing Emergence on Rough Trade, that I would notice if they didn't read something. It's true, I would. But when a new reader hits my site and they're commenting on everything or commenting on half of everything or whatever, when they stop, I, I honestly just, it's off my radar you know, and so I don't need, like, the report card of what they're not going to read and why. Yeah, it's just like, yeah. I am um, going to get some uh, I'm gonna get some food because my sugar is dropping. All this harassment I went through kind of messed me up. So that's what that noise you're going to hear. Oh, I am on my podcast. I cannot believe you just did that. Now, doesn't everybody want to know was, what warranted that that tone? <laughs> like, I went over it? into the refrigerator and I got an ass grab. I figured it was something bodily, yeah. What do you call that, a goose? I got goose. Is that, is that what it's called? A goose is a sharp poke between the buttocks. If that's what happened, that might be an overshare. No, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Just a general ass grab. <laughs> Jackass. <laughs> the circus thing in the chat. Really, really unexpected. God, I didn't even know he was in the kitchen. He snuck <laughs> up on me. The circus thing that she got a. Um, she wrote a, a Dragon Riders of Pern Sentinel AU and somebody a slash story and somebody wrote her to ask her if she would write a gen version because they don't want to read Slash. Um, <laughs> you told me to kiss my ass because you should have. Yeah, we just run right out and do that. 
I have someone who who um, is very obsessed with my Harry Hermione stories, and of course they ran out of story reads, and they were upset because there wasn't any more. So he said that um, he read all my other Harry Potter stories and just skipped all the sex scenes. I'm like, okay, but there really wasn't that many sex scenes for you to skip. <laughs> okay. Yeah, what did he skip in like, of the Serpent King? I mean, come on. There's like one sex scene at the very end where they kind of like, um, they rub off together, which is more like advanced groping than it is actual sex, at least in my mind. Um, yeah. And then there are two sex scenes in... Um, the war mages. War mages. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was like, what are you skipping, dude? There's not much there. Not in a literal way. What, if what he means is he's skipping every intimate moment between them, that's just sad. <laughs> but the actual content and of sex compared to the rest of the story, there's not that much. This is going to be really terrible, but I'm going to confess something. Um, because I know I have homophobic readers that sometimes will read my other works and skip sex, um, sometimes I put plot points or really important discussions in the middle of a sex scene <laughs> so they'll get confused. Remember, folks, 95% caffeine, 5% spite. <laughs> <laughs> I, I regret nothing. <laughs> It's because the fact of the matter is is that I, I also do it to people who don't read het sex. Um, there are lots of moments in um, Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond that if you're skipping the sex scenes, you're missing out on stuff. You're, you're missing connections. Um, and I do it because it really ticks me off when you skip my sex scenes. Because um, to me... Sex is sex is sex. I don't care what my genders, what what they got going on in their pants until it's time for them to get their parts together out of their pants. That's when it matters. Is it a tab, is, is it a tab A and a slot B or slot C? <laughs> Are there two tabs? <laughs> and up until that point, I don't care. You're writing about a relationship, not about a sex scene. And if you like the relationship, I mean, I could see somebody who who said to me that they really don't care for reading sex scenes in general, um, but they really enjoy the story. And I actually did talk to a reader like that once, and but she still skims the sex scene to make sure she's not missing anything, but she's just not interested in reading sex. Okay, I totally get that. But she's not like, you know... She's not, like, making an ooh face like she smelled something nasty as she's going through it. It's just not her thing. That's fine. Actually, that's kind of like, you know, I don't like reading sex. I like your stories enough to deal with it anyway. (laughs) That's not too bad. (laughs) It's irritating to be, um, to encounter uh, people who are so rigid in their thinking that way, um, they don't want to read them slash 
They don't want to read Flash. They don't want to read Hetsex. And the most fascinating thing I see in fandom are women who are obviously heterosexual, who are engaging in heterosexual sex in reality, who vehemently refuse to read Hetsex on the Internet. Yeah, what is that? It's like, <laughs> I don't ew, head sex, ew, nasty. Um, okay. I, I really don't get it. That's just dumb. <laughs> Anyway, um, I just, I I really, you can read whatever you want to read or not read whatever you want to read, but when you intrude on a writer and, and with your wishes, um, and your preferences, that's really ugly. It's terrible. No matter what it is, whether it's pairing or or about um, the sex that's happening. Um, I got a really rude email when um, <laughs> there's a scene in Harry Potter and the Soulmate on where Hermione... There's no delicate way to put this. Where Hermione eats Harry bath. Is rimming more, more, less, whatever. Um, and I got complaints because I didn't warn for that. Apparently, readers would like me to have put little stars around the scene um, to block it off in the, in the narrative and put rimming here, rimming here, rimming here, so there wouldn't be any confusion. But these same readers have absolutely no problem with Harry going down on Hermione. Um, and I've got news for you people who don't actually know how human anatomy works. Um, for a woman, as much as we like to keep everything awesome clean down there, it's, there's a point where it's pretty much all the same. That's just anatomy. Things are here, things are there, things are going to be in both places. Okay? From a biological perspective, the things you're concerned about, which is the bacteria and whatnot, I assume that freak them out, it exists all the way down the thighs and up to the hips. It's all over the place. On the dick. It's everywhere. I mean, it's part of your, we talked about the human biome. Actually, it's part of being healthy. So, you know, shut up. (laughs) And, you know, it's like, not saying everybody has to have this, everybody has to have the same kink, but, you know, Asking an author to offset, because there are authors who do that, who they'll offset sex starts here, sex ends here. No. I won't do that. I hate that. I hate that. I will close up six so fucking fast when I see that. 
or lemon? Lemon begins here or I, lime here. It's like, oh, my God. I, I hate that, that the comes one, from um, anime. I fucking hate it. Yeah. I will. So I got news for you, people who don't really understand uh, the human body. Putting your mouth on someone's balls is actually literally no different than putting your mouth on their asshole. So just get past it. If you don't like rimming, you don't like rimming. Fine. But it's your issue. Keep it to yourself. (laughs) Don't put it off on me. And this is why my show is rated R. Apparently something I said just in, in general, that, I always mark them all rated R just because even topics where it shouldn't realistically come up. <laughs> we will get somehow asses and mouths will be involved. <laughs> Eventually, everything goes back to the ass. <laughs> That's right. Um, and actually, I will have to say one of the one of the one of the few archives I really, like, legit cannot stand. Um, uh, somebody has to wreck a story to me that, and promise me, somebody I trust, and they have to swear to me that it is the best story on the fucking planet, and the only place I can find it is on adultfanfiction.net. <laughs> That's the only way. <laughs> and there's, about, there's about five I people. I didn't even know that, that existed. From. Oh, it's terrible. And they use those anime tags for warnings, the lemon, the lime, that all kind of nonsense, grapefruit. I mean, come on, let's just move on. That site. Is, I did not know um, adultfanfiction.net existed until I was, um, until I left fanfiction.com because I was too dirty and I was posting all of my stuff on my own site. And someone um, asked me why I had left fanfiction.net. And I pointed out that I was actually in violation of their um, of their agreements, and I didn't want to get my fix deleted out of the blue when I wasn't paying attention. So I just decided to do the moving, and they suggested that I go to adultfiction.net because I wouldn't have to deal with um, any of those um, any of that censorship. Which is yes, true enough. They don't censor. Yeah, they really don't censor, but they also is the site is clunky and kludgy as hell, and things have weird wrapping. Like you'll get an entire story that is one line, like three thousand words. <laughs> Just keep scrolling left to right. It is so weird. <laughs> That's not as bad as the formatting on that old NCIS forum. Well, they just what happened. That was a. Um, that is that they did a update that didn't read smart quotes um, anymore, mm-hmm. and so all the smart quotes, any any kind of smart punctuation, um, apostrophes, quotes, got converted into weird symbols. Um, so anybody who was pasting in straight text was fine, but anybody who had pasted in something with the curly quotes um, got the weirdo ass symbols. So I'm That's terrible sight. So I'm pasting a, pasted a site in the chat window that is a fandom um, terminology glossary, and it explains what lemon, lime, grapefruit. Grapefruit? Fruit. What? Um, it, 
Um, well, lime would be like um, sexual content but not explicit. Lemon would be um, sex, explicit sexual content. And grapefruit, typically most people agree, although there's not a lot of consensus about grapefruit, is that it means that there's rape involved. Well, I don't like grapefruit, but I feel like that's a disservice to grapefruit. No, fanfiction.net uses adultfanfiction.net uses weird they use these weird tags. They use these anime tags. So whoever started adultfanfiction.net clearly came from um maybe I use the word weird, but it's weird in the sense of most fandom doesn't use them, but clearly somebody with an anime background is running that archive because um that's the tags. And when I first encountered adultfanfiction.net, I um um I had no clue what any of these warnings meant. Meant I was just so confused, and I had to go learn all this other language to figure out what I was reading. People would talk talking about heavy lemons, <laughs> and I was like, "Warning, heavy lemons, uh, heavy lemon." And I was like, oh, what the fuck is that? <laughs> is that like vodka and lemonade? What does that mean?" <laughs> Urban Dictionary who, is my friend. And who cares what uh, people are drinking? I don't get it. Quite frankly, I wouldn't want a lemon or a lime there either. I don't want anything in my bits and bobs. No food. I don't need anything edible. Um, No, no food. No food. That's that's like, isn't that one of our rules? It's like, you know, if it's a consumable, you don't put it up your hoo-ha? It should be. They make devices specifically for that. You do not have to degrade a cucumber in the last moments of its life. Now, the so one buy exception, yourself a dildo. The one exception, and this is for you really kinky ginger? buggers out there, is ginger. Yeah. <laughs> Very specific purpose. And if you do that on the regular, especially if you do it up your hoo-ha, props to you. <laughs> Serious props. Like all the props. You are a total badass. badass. Like, <laughs> <laughs> nope. And if you if you're a guy and you're into dick figging, man, I I, I don't even know what to say. You have tolerance levels. I salute that I just... you, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go. Won't be none of that here at home, but <laughs> if you think crabs are bad, you don't even want to think about ass aphids. <laughs> yeah, just, just keep everything out of your ass unless you buy it specifically for that purpose. They make a lot of toys that are just specifically made to go in your ass. And if you're going to fig with ginger, make sure it is a large and sturdy piece of ginger. Because you don't want to get that stuck and not be able to get it out. That's a very embarrassing trip to the emergency room. Unless you've got somebody who's a much better friend than anybody. 
Oh, it's going to be terrible. And the more you clench, the worse it hurts. So don't yeah, lose it, but if you do. You out before the ambulance can even get to your house. So just be careful. Uh. Oh, Demand, I wish it was teenagers, but it's not. The um, I would put the number of underage writers in almost any fandom at a very low percentage. Immature writers isn't quite the same thing as as teenage writers. Um, So these aren't kids using the term lemon and lime. These are grown ass adults using that shit. Yeah, definitely. Unfortunately. So we talked, so we, um, in terms of big fucking plots, I just had a thought. Um, <laughs> hmm. Okay, so like an hour before the show, I think about an hour before the show, I had like a world-building idea. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking maybe I could throw it out there and we could talk about how big of a story that would be. The problem is it's mostly world building at this point. So I'm not certain how much what the story is exactly. I've got kind of the rough idea of the beginning of the story. We could try it out. We got okay. 41 minutes to go. It's it's big. It's big on the world building side of it. So I'm still a little bit in Sentinel Guide mode. I've only like come up with like 15 Sentinel Guide stories. Um, but so thinking about a Sentinel Guide Star Trek AU, um, specifically where, um, backstory, that at some point in history after First Contact, but before Reboot, so at least at least 100, 150 years before Reboot, um, big issues with how guides are treated on Earth. And Sentinels and guides um, negotiate with the Vulcans to get them off of Earth. And I'm thinking that the world building is that psionic energy kind of runs sort of like through some sort of psionic equivalent of ley lines in um, the galaxy, and that the shamans are the ones who maintain and power those ley lines and connect um, the ley lines to, or open and close the ley lines to a planet. So when... The Sentinels and Guides board the spaceship and they take off. They, um, the last shaman um, slams shut the ley lines to Earth, blocking any Sentinels and Guides from emerging, from, from coming online on Earth, and all of a sudden there's no more Sentinels and Guides. And they go off, they take refuge on um, another planet. The Vulcans help them get set up. And they want nothing to do with the Federation. They want nothing to do with Earth. I mean, they are like holding a massive grudge. Um, fast forward to after the reboot, after the destruction of Vulcan. Now, they're very connected to... Vulcan had very powerful psionic wells, and because of um, and all of the Vulcan's abilities, but they um, don't control the wells. They don't have shamans um, in there um, amongst their people. So the shamans that are um, they helped relocate are still very connected to the Vulcans and they feel Vulcan destroyed. 
So they have to get shamans from wherever this planet is with these people that they've integrated with instead of people on Earth to New Vulcan to open up the um, psionic wells on the new planet so that Vulcan, the new Vulcan can prosper. So my thought is the story starts with Kirk getting his orders to go pick up a delegation from, and it's sort of like this is a diplomatic delegation because we really want to reopen ties with these people. We want them to reopen the psionic wells on Earth. So be nice, get these people to New Vulcan, let them do their thing, and try to get them to have talks with us because they've been avoiding us for the last couple hundred years. Um, That was while I was working on the hour before the show. Okay. So, um, now that could be, sometimes I have a lot of world building in a teeny tiny plot, but I think that that would be a fairly big story. Yeah, I mean, well, first you need to figure out how you're going to um, lay out the information leading up to Kirk going to retrieve this delegation from the Sentinel world. Well, I would probably start the story when he gets his orders. Um, and so you're going to have go. to unload all of this back history through conversations, debriefing, communications. Exactly. And some of it with, um, like, Sarek talking to Spock about part of the reason why the Enterprise is chosen um, is because Spock is on board and that he understands the importance of the psionic wells on New Vulcan being healthy and that they need these people to come and that, Kurt, you know, Spock will understand the importance of that, whereas other people on the Enterprise may not, and to please help ensure that this mission goes off. So, you know, between conversations between Sarek, um, Spock Prime, and Spock, I can lay out some of the back history. Um, okay, my first far-out thought is that the people on this planet who left Earth literally cannot control that whole psionic well thing on Earth because the only way they could control that is to make sure that no world where any human lives has psionic wells that are open because it only takes one colonist who comes online as a shaman that shaman goes back to Earth and reopens the well. Hmm. You can't, in, in order to demonstrate the kind of control that you want, not only would they have had to remove themselves, they would have had to remove every single human on Earth who had the Sentinel and Guide genetics that they could pass on to others. And bring them to this planet, and not ever let them off. And that's to say that that is 
a genetic condition that cannot be spontaneous, that it couldn't re-evolve on Earth or on a different colony and spring back up in a line that hasn't had a sentinel and guide in a thousand years. It's like when I was in college, I had this professor who talked about the unconscious um, mind and how we suppress traumatic experiences. And he explained it where, like, he said, what your, what your mind does is that all these, your mind's water, and all these traumatic experiences you have are little corks, little wine corks, popping you know, in the water. And you use your fingers, your mind, to hold these little corks down. But eventually, one of those little corks is going to pop up because you can't hold them all down at once. So the kind of control that they that these people who are fleeing Earth want is impossible. Because, not to quote Michael Crichton, but life will find a way. <laughs> and if the psionic plane is threaded throughout the universe, while they can control what they do and what happens on their planet and what their society allows on their planet, they won't be able to prevent somebody born on a different planet who comes online as a shaman from reopening those wells on Earth. Unless they hold everybody hostage. True. Well, I'm thinking, what I'm thinking is that, well, my original thought was, and I think there's some, clearly some things to work out around the world building, is that um, Sentinels and Guides find a planet where there aren't um, open psionic wells to be impossible to live on. And they won't come online on a planet where they're, even if they've got the genetics, they won't come online where there is an active psionic energy. So let's say somebody who's got the genetics is living on another planet and come online, they try to go back to Earth, they're not going to want to stay. They can stay if they're in the wells. They could. Now, that's, that, 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 is, that is the hole in my theory is that... Um, um, what would prevent if a, if a shaman came online um, what would prevent them from being induced to go back to earth and open the wells if it was if it's a shaman um, that closed them well the fact of the matter is, is that even among their own populace um, the human condition is built on rebellion so maybe they live on this planet two or three hundred years. Some asshole kid comes along and says, you know what? This is some bullshit. I need to explore. I need to go other places. This isn't working for me. <laughs> and this little asshole kid puts around and does whatever the hell he wants. And the other, one of the other things that um, really struck me when you were talking about it is... Um, the concept of closing the psionic wells on Earth seems vengeful and punitive. It is. It's a very angry act. The vengeful and the punitive in that moment, a hundred years later, is abusive. Because if they haven't taken all of the people who have the potential to be sentinels and guides with them, 
then there are sentinels and guides on earth who are cut off from the basics, from, from an essential part of their nature. And that is profoundly abusive. Mm. Which would only ramp up the amount of resentment on earth. And nobody holds a grudge like a human being. It's true. Yeah, that's something I definitely have to work out because um, I think I could see Sentinels being angry enough to say, you're treating our guides badly and we're we're done. We're leaving um, with you. We're leaving, yeah, and being, and I actually wrote that into a um, story recently, was um, a guide goes in to talk to um, somebody and says, um, I, you know, um, it, you know, Sentinels used to run the show, but the reason guides do now is because of this reason, because Sentinels are very single-minded about their protection of their guides. And the reason why I'm telling you this is so that you understand how much worse today could be for you if I wasn't the one in charge. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, which is sort of a fun scene to write. It's sort of like a guy going, I'm giving you all this history. It's like, why? what's the point of this history? It's because I want you to have really clear on just how much worse this moment would be for you if Sentinel still ran the show. <laughs> um, so... I could definitely see really angry sentinels, especially if guys were being harmed, being like, you know, the big fuck you. But that's a good point about how long would they allow that to go on before it was too punitive to the people on Earth who carried um, the genes. Right, because at that point, they're abusing their own kind. Yeah. You know, leaving in the immediate, they're punishing society for not treating them with the respect they deserve. A hundred years later... They're still punishing that society for how they were treated, but they're also abusing their own kind. And that's kind of counterintuitive to um, what we know to be Sentinel canon, is to protect the tribe. Yeah. So I do like the idea of them abandoning Earth. It's the closure of the psionic wells that resonates in a way that's kind of ugly. In the moment, it feels like justice. You know? It's like, fuck you and the horse you rode in on. <laughs> in that moment. Yeah, so I probably would have to, considering that that whole punitive thing, I think that um, hmm. So if I were to, if I were to, let's say, rework that into, um, the I'm not saying sentinels you can't and, do it, but it would be no, very no, just, angsty and hostile. No, but this is one of the things that you're really good at, is thinking through the consequences, and that's something that I probably would have stumbled into 100,000 words in and went, gee, that was actually really kind of mean. Um, <laughs> what I could do, 
instead is have it be that if they take all the active guides and shamans and they go, and then basically it's still a little bit mean, but the training and the knowledge about like how to use these abilities is now gone. It's left the planet. So maybe people are still coming online, but they're sort of fumb- they basically have to fumble through to their own new training system. Um, they're how to build skills. And then basically, I would say that maybe they're at a rudimentary level in a lot of ways because they've lost access to all of that historical well of knowledge. Um, and So not only do they take the practical experience, but they remove all the actual information from Earth. Yeah, I think. Well, I think that a lot of it was. Well, I, th- I think that like the 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 way of the shaman would be is probably as much oral tradition as it is passed on from one to another as it is written down. But actually, I could see if they were really angry when they left. I could even if they maybe came to regret it later. I could see that they would be making like the grand gesture. They'd be making the big fuck you, the big double bird. Um, we're going to cut you off as much as we possibly can from this, and that it might be that that fact that they left them floundering to try to figure out the Sentinel Guide thing on their own um, might be what softens their attitude towards Earth later. Is like, well, look at what happened when we, because our people kept any, and it yeah, could be because, a kind of an un- okay, it'd be a consequence that they would have to then deal with. It's like, well, we left them floundering, and now they don't and know anything. How many? young sentinels died how many guides came online had nowhere to turn to and no information to give and killed themselves if you think about the world building attached to a sentinel and a guide in a traditional fantasy sense in a way that you and I both write them just imagine someone who um you know, let's say, for instance, we took the character um, since you, since I, since we both read Ascendant recently. Let's say that um, Steve McGarrett comes online, an Alpha Ascendant, a Sentinel with an empathic sense, and he's 17, 18 years old. Um, there's no information anywhere to be had. He knows what he is, but he has no help. He can't find his guide by himself. He's he's living in. Hawaii and his guide could be anywhere on Earth, if they're still even on Earth, because it's only been 20 or 30 years since the Sentinels and Guides left. So it could be that his guide was born on another planet. See, here he is floundering with all these gifts he can't control, rashes, sensory spikes, sensory zones that turn into a coma, and he's dead by 25. If he's lucky. Yeah. And that would be, I think that, uh, that would, anything is in terms of like plotting um, and estimating word count, that whole dynamic of the consequences of what we did when we left probably adds 30 or 40,000 words to the story, assuming you deal with it. Well, it, 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 it's a lot of building because you know, just imagine if um, if Jim if Jim himself is is from a Sentinel and God line, and over the years in every generation of Kirk, two to three of his family members have come online and died. 
young because they had no help and they couldn't figure it out on their own and they didn't get a guide or they didn't get a sentinel. And maybe he was rebellious in his teens because he was coming online and he had nowhere to turn and, and no and no information and even with the Federation being what it is, they still weren't getting any information out of the clinic because they refused to deal with the Federation and Vulcan isn't helping, isn't trying to help and humans are still dying on Earth. Because they're not getting the help that they need. And here's Jim, he's angry, he's online, he doesn't have any help, he doesn't have any information. And he ends up in Starfleet, doing the best that he can. And then he's confronted with this mission where he has to go and beg those assholes who left most of his family to die for help with Vulcan. Not help for Earth, but help for Vulcan. And meanwhile, a couple hundred years have passed. How many sentinels and guides on Earth have died because they didn't have... I'm just imagining... You know, these sentinels and guides on this other planet have isolated themselves, so they really have no idea what's going on on Earth. And they, they're confronted with this online guide who is in a great deal of pain, who suffered most of his adult life, maybe even his young adult life, with these gifts he cannot control. And no one has helped him with. Just imagine a sentinel encountering an online guide like that who's been essentially emotionally abused by everybody around him because he can't control his own empathy. Just imagine how much guilt there would be. Hmm. Because they would come face to face with the decision that their ancestors made. And they've been following the status quo for a couple hundred years, and they really didn't, because they weren't communicating with Earth. They had no idea what was going on. And then they're confronted with the ramifications of not only Earth's actions in the past, but the actions of their own people in the past, and all the people who have died as a result, or who have ended up in mental institutions on Earth because they can't be controlled. Hmm. So in thinking through the, some of the consequences and things you pointed out, I immediately started reworking how to do things in my head so that I think that the idea of the people who left having to confront the situation they left behind is intriguing. Um, and But I don't want it to be that dark. So they had to have left. stuff in the chat room. So... Huh? Kelly on Facebook states, because she's not, she can't get in the chat room. As for the Star Trek SG abandoning Earth idea, did anyone on the Ark ship leave on Earth know that one, what, what if one shaman cut the wells off on Earth is what she's getting at? Um, and no one knew it. Like an act of revenge, because maybe they killed a sentinel or something. But then again, it opens up a lot of resentment and a lot of um, abuse, and it goes back to that dark idea of, um, of, them having yeah, punished future generations. Yeah, because if you if you take it to the um, if you close the plot hole about just one shaman reopening the well, you could close that by having multiple shamans be required to open and close the wells, right? So you would need to have, like, let's say, I don't know, some number that was implausible working in concert 
with a gift that's relatively uncommon to do this thing. You could close that plot hole that way, but as you pointed out, you don't address the part of all these people who have a biological destiny that now can't be fulfilled. Um, And that could also breed a lot of resentment. Because if you're if you if you're supposed to be a sentinel or you're supposed to be a guide and that's your what you're supposed to be, that's what your DNA says. But the the facility for that to happen is gone. Um, you could be really angry about that, or may I don't even know it might make people emotionally unstable. Very much so, I would say. And I think it would, like, one of the more horrifying concepts in my technology that I was first is the dormancy. Um, and cutting off the psionic energy on Earth would essentially drive the guides and sentinels on Earth dormant. Yeah. And for me, when I write dormant, they're usually sociopaths. Yeah. So if I went the route of they didn't rip all the information away, but maybe Earth had to eventually earn it, learn its lesson. Maybe they kept going down this path of, like maybe the, the tradition of the way of the, the, the walking the path to shamanism is something that's beyond their grasp without an actual shaman to teach them. But let's say they can't strip out all the information um, Sentinels and guides eventually. Kelly mentions the eugenics war, so Earth is pretty common, you know. Earth and it's because that would be around the same time as the eugenics war. Yeah. Well, so yeah. you'd have more. You'd have another resurgence of um, sentinels and guides, and maybe they take off again. And eventually, Earth has to figure out how to get this right. Um, well. One way to handle it. Um, if you go back to Sentinel Cannon, Jim was unique. Almost. It was Alex. Um, but a Sentinel was profoundly rare. Um, now, in SOA, and in, in fact, I tend to make Sentinels and guys, a genetic thing. Um, so it runs in families. And if most of the major lines left during the evacuations based on um, Earth's treatment of them, um, there wouldn't be many guidelines, you know, lines, family lines left on Earth especially post-eugenics war when there's not a lot of people to begin with. I mean, it was a pretty heinous period in Earth history in Star Trek. Um, if they've gathered up all the active online guides and they've taken their families too, then they would. They wouldn't just leave their families behind. So this is not right. just Sentinels and Gods leaving. It's Sentinels and Gods leaving with their kids, with their parents, with their brothers, with their sisters. So there wouldn't be a lot of Sentinel and Guide genetic left to avoid building up a whole bunch of resentment on Earth. Mm -hmm. 
you could arrange it so there just haven't been that many that come online, maybe one or two in a couple hundred years across the whole planet. But then maybe the destruction of Vulcan and a huge threat against the Federation, because this planet is not a part of the Federation, right? They don't want anything right. to do with Earth, right? They don't want well, they don't want anything to do with so, the Federation because it's Earthborn. But if we go, you mentioned going back to Sentinel Earth Cannon. Earth is central to the Federation. Um, you mentioned going back to um, Canon in Canon. Um, sentinels had been more common, and they died out when there was lack of need for them, basically. Um, right. So if you take it to that conclusion and you've got these sentinels and guys on another planet, they took all most of the genetics with them, their families, their brothers or sisters. You know, that's just the kind of thing that you, you don't leave your family behind if you're evacuating the planet. So let's assume that, that they all left, and that there were just a few lines left, and they weren't coming online. But then Vulcan is destroyed, and the Federation is facing a huge threat. A huge threat. And Sentinels and Guys start coming online on Earth. Hmm. Because Vulcan would be, um, because of the, I mean, whether different, let's say different, different expressions of it, but Vulcan would be, their population would be a huge presence on the psionic plane. Um, mm-hmm. with their telepathy and their gifts. And to have all that blinked out would, you know, to use a Star Wars term, it was a horribly terrible thing to do. It's just bad form in a Star Trek. But a major disturbance in the Force, you know. Um, so, yeah, well, it would be. But it, also in, in, um, in the first movie, the Romulan ship does attack Earth. So it could be that that brings online a whole bunch of sentinels and guides. Maybe not many in the scope of things, but enough that suddenly Earth has a real problem. I mean, it could be easily 20 or 30, especially if most of them were in Starfleet. That would be a, whoa, we need to do something. <laughs> we got a problem. <laughs> you what the hell's going on? What do we do with them? And and then it won't be there won't be all of that. Um, then there might then, have been between the evacuation and at this point there might have been maybe a handful over a hundred a couple hundred years that came online and and didn't survive because of um, one reason or another. And then that way you don't have this societal um, resentment built up. Yeah, that's a lot easier to deal with. So, and then, and it could be that Jim comes online. Are you going to have Jim online? And I, I, my, my hunch, my, my kind of like rough idea of a plot is that he comes online after the delegation is on board. Um, so now there's actually be two purposes for them to go get people from this planet. One is New Vulcan needs help, um, and two, because perhaps. The sudden, you know, assuming Vulcan has sentinels and guys, just need to work that out. Um, it could cause an upswing in the percentage of sentinels and guys, even if the number of them is actually lower. Um, well, if you wanted to make Spock a god, you could have it come from his mother. Yeah, true. Um, but I was thinking that it would happen 
that they wouldn't send someone who's in distress out there to get the delegation, that it would happen after the delegation's on board on the way back to either Earth or New Vulcan um, to help with the problem, which is a much cleaner idea. Um, but because, so this is one of those things that because it's got kind of a lot of complicated world building, and this that this is where the plotting is very variable on how, for me, about how, figuring out how long it's going to be, is how many relationships am I going to be dealing with, how many sentinels and guides are going to be involved, um, you know, Am I going to be dealing with storylines on two planets or just one planet? Um, and that could be, you know, I sometimes I get a feel early on, but depending upon the minimum, I would say I'm looking at, I would say I'm looking at 80,000 words. And depending upon, like, the double planet thing, so you got two different storylines going on, and depending upon the numbers of Sentinel guys involved, it could be another, another 175,000 words on top of that. What you could do. Um is shape it in an episode format. Mm-hmm. So you're not having a a large arc in a single novel. Um and when you do it in episode format you can kind of shift your focus between characters and it's not jarring to the reader. Um at least it's not to me, because one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I shaped Sentinels of Atlantis the way I did is so that I could move around to different points of view and it wouldn't be jarring. If that was one big novel, you'd be like, why the fuck is she in Bates' point of view? Who gives a shit about Bates? <laughs> but because I did it in episodes, and that episode was about Bates, there was never any, um, there wasn't a question as to why it wasn't his POV. So if you did it in episode format, you could actually go back and do the exodus in the first episode. Kind of like how Stargate Atlantis opens and we see the the ancients leaving Earth. Mm, okay. You can yeah. kind of structure it that way. Yeah, and this is what I say when when we talk about when we talk about like big plots, something you know potentially is gonna be big. I was talking to somebody recently about plotting something that you know is going to be enormous, it is very difficult to get, for me, to get a reasonable plot for something that I know is going to be two to 300,000 words. Like well, just that's the why you break work. it up into manageable events. Manageable pieces. So as long as you know what your overall arc is going to be about, then mm-hmm. you can start cutting it down into smaller chunks. Um, Right, yeah, because Sentinels of Atlantis um, actually has an arc for the entire seat, like the entire five-season arc. There's an arc Mm -hmm. from episode one to basically, I don't know what's 525, episode last one. (laughs) 125. So episode 125 and episode one, between them there's a big arc. Now, in each season I also have an arc for the event. And um, if you look, I think that my um, the queen is probably the uh, the climax of season one. And then the rest of it's falling action. Where okay. at, and in each story, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. 
there's also across the entire season a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then across the whole story, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And my season three is going to be my climax for the entire series. I'm over here right waving my hands around like, like like you guys can see that shit. I just did a whole mountain thing with my hand like, like you guys can see it. Um, I do it too. <laughs> taking a mountain high enough. Um, <clears throat> I do a lot of pointing. But um, so if you break it down into episodes and say, even if you only do like 10 episode seasons or, or whatever how you want to break it down, and then you could have your first episode um, – kind of setting your world up and setting up the expectations for the reader. Um, and then that way your episode two can be um, events or, you know, just moving towards Jim um, on the Enterprise going to the planet. You know, and, and that way if you break it down into small spots and each spot has a, has a place on your big arc, I'm waving my hands again. <laughs> it, it's easier to plot. Much easier because when you are working towards something that is 200,000 words away, that's a lot harder than working to, uh, towards something that's 30 or 40 or 10 or 15,000 words away. Um, it's a piece that's manageable. And so um, it's like I can already kind of get a feel I have to work out some more of the world building, obviously. But I kind of have a feel of what the arc would feel like. Um, but trying mm-hmm. to plot out that entire arc, I would spend more time plotting than writing to try to get that all squared away. And I envy the people who so, can actually do that, who can, like, storyboard or um, whatever it is that they do, something enormous like that. But it, it, I get I into storyboard the storyboard of Atlantis, but that's my only storyboard though right now is Sentinels of Atlantis. And what I did for Sentinels of Atlantis is um, um, Season 1, Episode 1, Title, Event. Season 1, Episode 2, Title, Event. Well, actually, Episode 2 had several events because it was building. I had to do a whole bunch of different things in in, uh, the gathering. I had to have John and Rodney meet. That was Event 1. I had to bring Vala home. Um, That was Event 2. And then um, the Cameron... Um, arc had to come together and Cameron's being brought back to the SGC. So that's part of all of art. And then I had to get them off Earth. So that's my whole arc in that episode. Um, and so episode two is um, an, an introduction to the dangers of Atlantis and ancient technology. Um, so so what I did was is I just I gave each episode a single event or a Event plus ramifications. But my first episode in any series is always much bigger because I have to, um, that's where all your world building is going to take place. Right. Because you don't want to leave your reader chewed in the dark about what's going on um, in that first episode. So so your pilot episode. <laughs> in the pilot. Needs to be a little bigger. It, it right. needs to be Do you two hours. Catch <laughs> yeah, we got two hour episode. So some somebody um some, actually somebody asked a question specifically about what Kirk at training as a betazoid, but that's Kira's canon. Um uh, I don't Kirk being beta Z is not um from beta Z is not yeah, it's not Kirk. canon. That's not that's, that's, that's not canon. my personal canon. That, I really love it though. It's my favorite. That, yeah, I do too, but it's someone's head canon um taken over. 
That's, I mean, the end result would be obviously to get Jim and Spock online. I mean, that would, that's obviously a big goal of the story. So when someone talks about taking a big plot, how do you plot something big, um, if you've never written something that is two or 300,000 words and it's just – that's not where I would start with a big plot. I would do exactly what we talked about here, which is come up with a big idea because – to me, when I came up with this idea earlier today, it was obvious, even though I hadn't worked out any of the kinks, it was obviously I knew it was going to be a big story. But what exactly that story was going to be, I didn't know yet. So once you have, I think once you have the big story, then you start figuring out what the smaller pieces are and where you would carve it up. You know, so... Well, I, big stories I probably, have a lot of elements. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of people. They have a lot of locations. Um, if you want to strip the story down and tell a small story, two characters, one location. Maybe two locations. <laughs> so that's, just, that's, that's the bone. So um, the more people, the more places, the more events, the bigger your story will be. And really, if you want to... Um, contain yourself and not be overwhelmed by a huge idea like this one that Jilly's been talking about, is that you need to break you need to break yourself down into small events that you can manage. Because I honestly had no idea like how big um, Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond was until I finished it. I mean, I knew intellectually how big it was, like how many like, numbers or words, but the actual growth of the series um, was like, oh, wow, look what I did. Because I focused on the individual events in my plot, so I wasn't overwhelmed. And I liked, I really liked the episode thing. We've talked about it a few times. I really dig the episode thing, and I'm starting to incorporate it into more stories because it does allow you to take a really big idea and first parse it down into maybe what could be seasons you know, arguably seasons mm-hmm. or whatever, movies or whatever, and arc, maybe take a huge idea, arc, cut it down into three parts, and then take each of those three parts and cut it each that down to 13 episodes or whatever. And that's much more manageable than trying to craft something that's 300,000 words. Which that's not only is true. We're down to 20 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> we chatted that all up. Um, we'll talk to you guys later. Good night, everybody.